Hello and welcome to the Sustainability Skillset Podcast, a show where we explore careers in sustainability and the skills to help you succeed. I'm glad you're here. If you are passionate about sustainability and hungry to learn, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Louis DeMasso, a sustainability consultant and young sustainability professional learning right along with you. In this episode, I was honored to speak with career coach Andy Nelson. In his past, Andy was involved with scaling multiple startups and worked in management consulting. He now focuses on helping mid-career professionals transition into the climate, sustainability, and social impact space. Andy has mentored hundreds of people through career changes. He understands the major challenges they face and provides them with essential tools and tactics to be successful. In our conversation, Andy and I uncovered so many actionable strategies for those who want to work on sustainability. Most notably, we covered three of the most common hurdles Andy sees related to identifying your transferable skills, understanding the sustainability jobs landscape, and developing a clear and confident mindset. If you are already working in sustainability, I'm confident that you'll take away new perspectives that will help you advance your career. Please enjoy this conversation with Andy Nelson. Good morning, Andy. It's great to have you on. Well, good afternoon from where I'm standing. Pleasure to be here. And you're just a bit south of London, right? Yes, that's right. In sunny Surrey. Quick pop fact, it is the most forested county in the whole of the UK. Wow. There's a sustainability aspect for you right there at the beginning of the episode. Yep. I like to bring facts up front. <laughs> well, I'm so excited for our conversation today. On this podcast, we've dove into sustainability careers and spoken with many professionals, but you are on the front lines of helping people get into sustainability careers, working as a career transition coach specifically helping with sustainability and climate transitions recently. Could you describe a bit about that? Yeah, certainly. I spent 20 years working in the corporate world myself. And in the last five years or so, got into the coaching and mentoring space and increasingly recognized a lot of the barriers to people switching careers, particularly into sustainability, are almost of their own making. So having the lived experience of working in the corporate world and also spending a lot of time in sustainability space afterwards, I started to recognize that there was a lot of assumed knowledge sitting on one side of the fence and a lot of poor cognitive availability, which is a smart and over-fancy way of saying awareness of the options on the other side of the fence. And so I really recognize the opportunity to help people make the transition. And out of that, out of some initial conversations and people asking me for help, that has flourished into a business where I'm very privileged to be able to help people find more meaning in their lives in a manner which also helps the planet. Well, that's so exciting. I think most people would be thrilled to have more meaning in their work and be able to pursue uh, sustainability as a career focus. Could you describe a bit more about that mismatch between the work that needs to be done and people's perception of how to get into the space? Sure. So I think the, I think the perception aspect, are the challenges that people have, is three, the three biggies and then the elephant in the room. And the three biggies are the perceived lack of transferable skills, the overwhelm of, I kind of want a job, but I, I just a job that I don't know exists is perhaps a better way of phrasing it. And then the fear and mindset question of um, change is always going to be difficult. And it's not something that we're really taught much about. It's not something that 
you know, it's called a comfort zone for a reason and making a change takes you out of that. And then the elephant in the room is money, 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 money. So there is the, the big question that I often get asked is, I've got to pay my mortgage. You know, you know man, I really want to help, but I've got bills to pay. Yeah. And there's this impression that basically the only way that you can help in the sustainability space is to go and plant mangroves somewhere remote and take a massive step down in pay and a massive disruption to your lifestyle. And that's not true. That's not true. There's opportunities to help even in the current world that people have. And I think it's much more evolution than revolution or transformative step that needs to be brought into focus when we think about helping real experienced talent apply themselves to arguably the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced. Absolutely. Sounds very, sounds very grandiose, that. I appreciate that. And sometimes it feels like these issues are so big, it's unmanageable. But yeah, those three perception problems and then the elephant in the room. Well, the challenges are enormous and that's part of the, that's part of the motivation for getting into the space, but also very, very approachable if you, you know, can understand what skills to develop and, and what companies are working on them. And I love that you mentioned the, the concept of evolution versus revolution because it doesn't necessarily have to be a enormous career shift getting into a space that is completely foreign to you. Lots of people, I imagine, when you mention transferable skills, can get into working on sustainability from, from right where they are now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think there's, there's, there's kind of two sides to that. There is the, well, what about the transferable skills if I actually do want to make a significant change? And the recognition in that space is that the transferable skills around change management, around communications, around stakeholder management, these are some of the most in-demand skills in the sustainability space. And for the mid-career career switcher who I, I typically tend to help, they have this experience in, in buckets. It's just they don't frame it in, in their way as being applicable to sustainability challenges, but it's, it's there and they have it. So it's a matter of helping them see that that is the skill that they can take. Then secondly, there is the, well, within the context that they are currently in is the opportunity to change the content of what they do. And so I was having a conversation last week with the head of sustainability for a fair sized IT company. And I asked him, how did you land this role? And this is, this is a dream job for many people. And bluntly, he said, well, it didn't exist, so I created it. I've worked here for 10 years. I'm like, ah, oh, well, how did you go about doing that? And it was a personal recognition that they could do more. And then making sure that sustainability was on the agenda within the organization. And then laying out some easy hanging fruit, building the business case. Moving through, I guess, what a lot of people assume you have to go and get an external sustainability consultant to do. But you know, there's social proof for people like him who have a, well, I can see what needs to be done and I can start doing it. And eventually the organization recognized this need was great. There was a strong business case. And so they asked him to head up a group and now he's got a team and he's, you know, he, he is one of the people that lots of people look to and go, oh, I wish I could do that. But that wasn't a huge transformational, I needed to quit. Go and spend 
seven years in, in a monastery in Tibet and, you know, focus on myself and my values. He just recognized an opportunity and took it. If you want to go to a monastery in Tibet, then that could totally be a, a path forward. But, you know, staying, staying near your family and, and staying in the company you're in certainly sounds like a good way to go as well. Yeah. And certainly don't fly there. I mean, it's kind of like slightly awkward if you're <laughs> trying to get to sustainability space, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's the evolution versus revolution thing that you mentioned. And yeah, I think if people, if somebody is in a company and there, there's two situations they might find themselves in, right? There's one that their company already has a well-developed sustainability program. And there's the other that their company doesn't. And if their company does have a good sustainability program, then in most cases, or at least in the US, there's you know, those programs are often severely under-resourced or there's somebody who, you know, sustainability involves so many people throughout an organization that they could always use help and they could always use champions within each division of the company. So reaching out to those leaders and, and offering up your help and your volunteering would be a way to get involved. And then if your company doesn't have a program like you described, then raising your hand and, and identifying opportunities to start one and to start working on sustainability could be a good path forward too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's sort of three things which are important when we think about content and context. In your current position, in your current context, being able to switch content, it's a way around three issues. And one of them is the excuse, I'm not working for the United Nations and therefore I can't change anything. And the other two are really recognizing the value of doing so. And the value is that Wanting to work for Patagonia, working there isn't going to change the world. They are pushing the boundaries, they are cutting edge, and they are leading and showing us the way. But working behind that curve is where the most significant impact is going to be made. So if you imagine the, the bell curve of maturity for organizations on sustainability, and the chances are that you're already in an organization that can and should be making changes to how they do business. So it's highly likely that you already are in the right place. And the second string to that is that if you think about who runs an organization, it is the employees. Who knows an organization, an organization better than those who work there already? And this is where it gets important because, again, it's another sort of myth of you need to bring in sustainability consultants to make change. The reality is that we all, those of us who work in, in, in the corporate space, know the power dynamics. We know the hidden agendas. We know the visible and invisible power structures. And so affecting change from within is an incredibly strong lever to be able to pull. And that comes from, in your current context, is changing the content of what you do. So context is the place where you work right now. It's the, it's the situation you're in and then content is the type of work you do. So you can change your content. You can change the work you do within the current situation that you're in. And that's a, a very empowering insight for many people. How does one go about doing something like that? Yeah, good question. It's hard. It's hard because we have the cognitive bias. The, the rules of the game are laid out to us by the organizations that we work in. And in order to change that, you sort of need to step outside slightly. And 
the easiest and most important way to do that is not to do it alone. So there are many networks that exist to help you support you in that journey. The crew over at Work on Climate hold regular webinars around start your own green team, changing companies from within. Every job should be a green job. Basically, Google for any of those sorts of titles and you will find help and support. So don't do it alone. There's a lot of help out there. Secondly, I think it depends a little bit on obviously your current situation, business and sector. Some are more resilient to change than others. Some you may find you're pushing on an open door. Some it's going to be a real test of your stakeholder management and change management skills. So when I think about how you'd go about that, there is a a spectrum between whether you need to advocate or agitate for change. And I think understanding that early sets the scene for the type of work and measures that you need to start addressing. So I've mentioned the example of head of sustainability in an IT company. Another recent conversation was uh, with a woman working in the banking sector, and she was asked to take on the CSR program part-time as a, as she described is a her words, not mine. She described it as a kind of token gesture in the right direction so that everyone could feel good about themselves. And she took that opportunity and very quickly established the business case for making real change, looking at some of the more challenging changes that an organization should be taking and use the platform that she'd been given to extend that remit into what I guess you could call the the real change that is required. And she said the the first few months were quite hard because it was all done side of desk work, um, but she got support. Um, She found support within the organization. Uh, And I think that's another key point. There is uh, a huge move for, we see it in the sort of climate quitting um, movement of um, employees are increasingly Curious to say the least about their organization's uh, sustainability credentials. And so she drummed up interest and built um, an informal team to start raising the changes around sustainability up the agenda into the senior management um, rooms. And then from that, again, eventually she was in a position to lay out the need for a full-time role in sustainability. And so transitioned from tokenistic CSR manager to be the head of, I think it was the head of sustainability engagement was an eventual job title. So long story there, but don't do it alone. Find support externally, find support internally, and then decide the extent to which you can get there by advocating or agitating. Would you call that example aggravating or agitating for change? Oh, that is a, ooh, that's a tricky one. So I would say that was agitating because it needed to be an extension of what the organization viewed as permissible. And aggravating for change would be basically grinding against what the organization is currently thinking is needed, but making the business case and showing the need for change. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So agitating for change would be that sort of bring a collection of people together and for want of a better phrase, for bringing the noise 
to those who need to impress. And obviously stakeholder management is a very complex topic in itself, but the ability to recognize where the resistance is and where the lines of easier engagement are and picking your battles wisely, perhaps, is the key to it. And advocating, if you're in a situation where you've got a few more open doors to push on, then you could see that as casually dropping the business case into the right hands. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see how people would be in either situation and looking for that best path forward. So you've mentioned stakeholder management and change management a few times, and these are topics that come up quite often in the realm of sustainability skills, but like communication, they can be hard to understand how to actually go about acquiring these skills or or applying these skills. Can you bring a little clarity to what those actually mean in a practical sense? Sure. So I think, um, let's pick the the first one around the communication skills. So there is a common perception that working in sustainability is quite a technical space. You need sort of, you're going to need to be a data scientist who also knows how to handle GIS, et cetera. And whilst that is true, those skills aren't enough because the data isn't what changes people's minds. Is that true for everyone? Is the technical aspect key for most roles? No, no, absolutely not. It is a common perception. People tend to think that they're going to be underskilled because they don't have technical skills to bring into the sustainability space and that therefore they're at a disadvantage. And I don't think that's true. So I see time and time again that people who have strong marketing or strong program management skills denigrate their ability to help because they don't feel they have the technical skills to back up what they think sustainability movement needs. So let's say that I'm a marketer and I have built up lots of communication skills throughout my career, but I'm concerned that I don't have the technical qualifications needed to get into a quote unquote sustainability role. But that's what I'm really passionate about. That's what I want to get into. Could you walk me through how you would how you would describe to me what what next steps I should take? Yeah, certainly. So if you're in that situation, there's two questions you need to ask yourself. Do you want to work for an organization which is sustainably mature or is specifically in the sustainability space? Because if that's true, then they're going to need marketing um, and communications in order to be an effective business and operation in the first place. So, you know, climate tech is, is the obvious example of where people think you need to have technical skills or be a data engineer or a coder in order to get that business off the ground. And whilst those roles are essential, they need to be marketed and the sales and communication function needs to be strong in order for that whole business to take place. So in terms of the, are you materially making an impact and making a difference if you're quote unquote, just doing marketing? Then the answer is yes, because you are fundamentally allowing that business to exist and for that business to then provide its services to the, to the broader market and make the change that it's intending to do. And the flip side of that is if you're working in a large organization, which is starting its, its journey into the sustainability space and is trying to make headway in terms of agreeing change within and then out to the market, then how that is communicated and the extent to which you are going to be hanging some of your claims around sustainability whilst avoiding the very real risk of greenwashing, then that is a hugely important space to be in, in terms of the marketing and and communications. It comes a little bit back to what we were talking about previously around the 
content and context. So you can take your current content and move it to a different context, which is a you know flip version of staying in your current context and then changing your content. So if you want to take your marketing and communication skills into a different organization, it's looking for the gap and the need in the market. And it exists. It's just a matter of, <laughs> of understanding how it is described in a slightly different context. Absolutely. And because we're in a place right now with sustainability becoming such a big focus of business in general and so much energy being brought to it, change is abound. So those communication skills, those marketing and sales abilities to facilitate that change is more important than ever. I imagine that those skills are not only important in their own right, but also to be layered on top of the technical skills would be important too, so that the communication and kind of sales ability should be woven in with the technical skills of data management and how do we actually get the insights we need to move forward. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, <laughs> one of the classic traps of people who are recruiting into the space is trying to find the unicorn talent that can do all of these things, right? And the reality is trying to train a data engineer in comms and marketing in order to be able to tell a better narrative with their data is extremely challenging in just the same way that trying to teach a comms and marketing expert the ins and outs of uh, Python and, and R. And yeah, trying to change that, that context is just as hard. So yeah. pairing these groups of people together is the key. And so I, I hope that gives a little bit of, of hope to, to all players in this market because it's all hands to the pumps to get there. Could you describe the mindset of somebody who's typically coming to you for sustainability career advice? What kinds of questions do they have? How are they feeling about their career search? And how do you guide them through success? Yeah, that's a great question. I think most people that I speak to are capable, talented, high achievers who have just realized that their life to date has mainly been pointless, which is bleak, distressing, and is profoundly destabilizing. The, the classic concept of a, of a middle-life crisis is now being overtaken with the, I should probably do, do something more than take my own coffee cup to the cafe in the face of a world on fire. What about my children and my grandchildren? And so I tend to speak to people as they are realizing this. And the mindset sort of fluctuates between complete overwhelm of, I, want to, I know I want to do something in this space, God knows what, because every time I look at this, every time I get into a job board and scroll through thousands of job adverts, I just get overwhelmed with the possibility and then disappointed that I am not already um, seasoned, experienced player in this field with a degree that's relevant. And the route or the, the sort of coaching journey that we tend to go on is really just to pause all of that panic and, and that sort of fear. And this may not be especially surprising, but take a, take a moment's review of the real alignment question, really, and as to why it is that you want to do something else. And I imagine and that I think, has often been brought about by learning about and recognizing the challenges we face in the climate space and in the environmental space and wanting to help with that in some tangible way, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, two, it's twofold. So there are push factors and pull factors. So 
Theroux's living in quiet desperation, people sort of experiencing this push factor of what I'm doing isn't, isn't aligning with my values now that I've got an opportunity to think about it. There's this sort of bleak, soul-sucking cubicle work that is not exactly setting me on fire and impassioning me in a way that I recognize I now deserve. And I think post-pandemic, that has only accelerated as people recognize that there are other things. Mm-hmm. And then there's the pull factors of, I want to make a difference. I want to do something more meaningful. I had to think of it as, I want fewer deathbed regrets as to having lived a life well-lived. So yeah, those two factors typically combine to be a very powerful motivating force, but one which is rarely understood by the people that I speak to and people that I help. So we typically dig deep into some of those and then look at the the extent to which motivation for change comes from wanting to feel like you're doing something better. And that can be as simple as start giving to charity. That's it. You know, the, yeah. the most effective way of you making an impact is possibly by earning more and giving your money away. And I tend to make recommendations reading some of the effective altruism work, like could I do good better and 80,000 hours, because I think it's important to have a, a real thousand mile view first before leaping into the, I've got to be out there on the front lines. And then once we understand whether that's enough and it's the pull factor and making a difference in that regard is, is strong enough, or whether there is something where the push factors, dissatisfaction of what your current content or context is, then we can start to explore what an alternative might look like. I'd love to dive into the tangible steps somebody can take after they've had this realization. But first, I want to quickly double click on this idea you just brought up, which is that someone might feel like they need to make an impact right now, that they really want to change their work. For somebody who's just getting into their career, one of the ideas that's been brought up in past conversations on this show is that maybe getting into a sustainability-focused job isn't necessarily the best first step because it's incredibly competitive and they want you to have skills already developed and that it's okay maybe to take a job that's not sustainability-focused, but you learn tangible skills, you learn a particular industry, you prepare yourself in a way to make an impact. Could you describe that at all and, and whether you agree with that sentiment or how somebody who's just starting out their career might chart a path into the impactful work that they're looking to do? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a dilemma. I think the opportunity to learn quickly and develop relevant skills certainly exists outside of the quote unquote sustainable business. And if you take a slightly longer term view for your own career path, then the fastest way to get there can be in more traditional big consultancy kind of work. And I think that's quite common. The challenge with that is staying true to your own sense of, of self in these very intense work environments and also continuing to foster your own network that's going to be helpful when it comes to sustainability further down the line. Fortunately, the market is shifting to, the, the recruitment market is shifting to a circumstance where a lot of the large consultancies have sustainability practices. So you effect, effectively get the best of both worlds in that regard. So yeah, I'd recommend looking at perhaps some of the more established players that invest more in their people and then get through it with enthusiasm and passion. 
So if you either have an opportunity in front of you or you've recently taken an opportunity that's not sustainability focused, but is something that is in your wheelhouse and, and you want to use it as a stepping stone, then two of the main things you'd recommend are just staying true to yourself as you go through that position and fostering your network, which will be an asset later on. And maybe a third would be also focusing on and continuing to keep in mind those skills that you're developing and really stay focused on how are you building those tools in your tool belt that you can use throughout your career. And as you bring more and more focus to sustainability and to the impactful topics that you want to work on. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then the moment you get through the door, first question is, so where's your sustainability team? Where do they sit? Oh, you haven't got one? Oh, interesting. Maybe we do some agitating or advocating for the fact that there should be one. I love that. And sometimes the new person to the organization can be the one that's most primed to bring new ideas. And people are even looking for that, right? They're looking to the new person to look at things in a different way and see how things could be done better. And yeah, oftentimes absolutely. sustainability comes with greater efficiencies, cost savings, better working environments. So being able to make that case as well and describe you know, the, the business benefits that they'll see might also be uh, one tool to pull out. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, you can consider it in a way to be a little bit of a sandbox playground because you can bring a business case for making minor changes in the organization that you'll be joining, see how it goes. You know, relatively low risk because it's not part of your day-to-day -day remit, potentially. It's not a well, your performance is judged on the outcome of this. So you're in a safer space to say, well, I'm also trying to do this. And again, the opportunity to fail fast and learn quickly. Love that. That's so helpful. So we were talking before about a typical job seeker who comes to you and wants advice about how to develop their career. And you talked about how they come to you wanting to change and finding motivation in having a tangible impact on the challenges we're facing as a world. What are the next steps? What are the actual tangible things that then you help them do to make that change or to shift the focus of their work? Okay, so a lot of this comes down to mindset and behavior change, I think, which is not always the most popular of opinion to, to hold because a lot of people have a, you know, if I just if I just polish my CV, if I just rewrite my CV one more time, then I'm going to land the job. So the practical and tangible steps, number one, don't go alone. So find the groups. I don't mean join job boards. I mean, find your local groups, green drinks in your area, for example. I often come back to this phrase of, you're going to land a job you didn't even know existed, ultimately. Because when you come into this space, there's so much ignorance and so many options that it's hard to plot a course. So it's finding a group of like-minded individuals and then go on a, a listening tour, effectively, of trying to explore. I had a conversation very recently with someone who was shying away from networking events because they didn't feel they had anything to offer. And I just made the point that you have two ears to offer. And people really do like talking about themselves. So go and ask everybody in the room what it is they do and what one fundamental thing do they enjoy most about it. And what you're doing is you're networking, you're being a positive force in the world because people like telling you, but you're learning about all these different roles. And then when you come back, do the desktop research to sort of, what does this role actually entail? And then 
start making these notes so you have this list of options. And in parallel to that is area are you going to use to make the decision as to where to go next? And that comes down to the, the, the classics in the coaching world of looking at values uh, and skill sets and strengths that you hold and the fundamental logistics of whether patient and pay are all going to match. So if you have your criteria and you have your options, there's no prizes for guessing what comes next. So you've described how somebody could go out and build their network and come to better understand the opportunities that are there. And then you've described what I'll try to sum up as maybe a skills audit, where they take a look at what they have learned in school or what they've already developed in their career and understand you know, what jobs they could apply for based on their new understanding. Is that right? Yes, sort of, sort of. The problem we face as humans is that we are very poor at self-assessment. We have a lot of blind spots when it comes to seeing our own qualities. And so when we get to that point, we start thinking about what we can offer. There are a lot of creative design approaches that I like to take with my clients to crowdsource their strengths and reframe their skills, typically because we need to get away from people looking back and having a CV mentality of what they've done. Effectively, if you're trying to make a change, then arguably what got you here won't get you there. One of my favorite tactics is creating a me for hire advert and deliberately sending out a request for feedback on strengths and skills as part of the listening tour to sort of understand what it is that you can distill from that because you're much more likely to get a, a helpful set of answers that aren't prone to your own prejudice, your own self-doubt, your own imposter syndrome. Absolutely. So building that picture from an outside perspective rather than sitting down and trying to write it, it's hugely valuable and often throws up the beginnings of new areas to look into and research in terms of directions that you might head in. That's such an interesting exercise. I love that. And it comes back to you building a network and just asking for help, which is not a bad thing, which is a good thing. And, and people want to help, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think when it comes to network, people, again, tend to think of, well, who is my professional network? What does my LinkedIn look like? And what's that is very important. It's only part of the question. So I encourage people to look at their personal network as well and look for feedback much closer to home. Because sometimes the strengths that we have are recognized by individuals outside of the classic working environment. So if you're a spectacular aunt or uncle, what is it about that trait which you can apply more, more broadly? So whether that's you're a great aunt or uncle because you've got great patience or great listening skills, then how do you convert listening and patience into a saleable skill in the market? And that might be something into effective communications, which might not be something that you would have necessarily put yourself forward as saying, well, I'm a great ineffective communicator. I love that because people outside of your professional network might have the most clear and objective perspective, exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. So with our last few minutes here, I'd love to kind of come back around to you getting into this pursuit of career coaching. What do you like most about your job? What, what is it inspiring to you about this? Instantaneously, I thought the look on someone's face when the penny drops that they can do something they hadn't previously considered. That's it. 
that is the greatest moment when in this field. If you're helping someone who has spent 15 years in high achiever, high stress environment, very goal oriented, and the moment they realize that when we talk about shifting goalposts, we're not talking about when a client changes the goalposts on a particular project. We're talking about you're in the wrong playing field. The goalposts that you're thinking of aren't even on, on the playing field. That recognition of, oh my God, there's a whole other world of stuff to do that isn't this. It comes like a revelation. The highest experience for me is you can sometimes see that in the middle of a conversation, that penny dropping. That's it. So I strive to do that because from a very personal perspective, that's awesome. And then there's all the, I can sleep well at night because I'm helping people find more meaning in what they're doing and helping the planet because I'm bringing you know, great talent to address the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. I love that. And that's the main reason I started this podcast as well, because I wanted to try to bring those stories from sustainability professionals to people who are needing to hear them to help get more people into the space and just to help clear up some of the confusion. You're so obviously doing that work every day and having such a tangible impact on people who are wanting to get into more impactful work. So thank you, Andy, for doing that. And thank you for sharing all of your insights today. It's been incredibly helpful for me and I'm sure for anyone listening, it's been wonderful. That was a blast, as they say, the end of uh, Trendy Podcast. But no, thank you very much for the opportunity. And keep up the good work. It sounds it sounds so interesting. It sounds like every day is exciting. Oh, it, it truly is. It truly is. It's nice to also feel like I've found a purpose and a calling and I have the luxury of being able to dedicate time to doing that. Thank you, Andy. Cheers. As always, thanks for listening. If you have the opportunity to leave this podcast a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that would really help the show grow. And I hope you join me next time on the Sustainability Skillset Podcast.